G'day folks, Rob Marshall here looking forward to sharing with you episode three of Heart of the Bookkeeper. We are loving that you are loving our podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers and a podcast that's all about bookkeepers, helping bookkeepers, helping business. This episode is simply wow, wow, wow. In this episode, we get to hear the amazing story of Colin Walker. I've gotten to know Colin well in the past 12 months, and the words impressive and authoritative as well as influential come immediately to mind. Many of you will know Colin as the former Assistant Commissioner of the ATO. Well, Colin explains in this episode how much more his life has achieved than just this title. As you will hear, much of what we understand of the modern ATO was in fact influenced by Colin and he takes us on a journey that almost chronicles the ATO of the past 50 years. Colin was also right at the cutting edge of the creation of online services for agents as well as the origins of the BAS agent regime, GST and to a lesser degree but just as important sales tax as it was here in Australia back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Colin also defined the tax systems of countries other than Australia and educates us in this episode about a country many of you probably have never heard of, I'm tipping. So, sit back and enjoy the phenomenal story of Mr. Colin Walker. Well, welcome, folks, to another exciting episode, hopefully, of Heart of the Bookkeeper. I, I am super excited. I'm, In fact, I'm really leaping out of my skin today. We've got a wonderful, wonderful guest, somebody that I have been looking forward to spending some time with and unpacking their story for quite a while now. Colin Walker, welcome to Heart of the Bookkeeper. Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to it as well. Excellent, Colin. Um You've been giving me a few insights into life post the ATO. Now, many of the listeners will know you predominantly as Colin Walker, Assistant Commissioner of the ATO, but right here, right now, that's about the furthest thing from your mind from what I'm gathering, and and some conversations of recent days suggest that uh, the word retirement has come into play, although a couple of conversations I've had with you suggest that the retirement you've got isn't really going to plan at the moment. Some renovations are coming into play. Maybe you want to tell the listeners, firstly, where you are right now and, and a little bit about what's life for Colin Walker right at the moment. Life for Colin Walker is frenetic, to say the least. <laughs> uh, I'm currently sitting what I describe as in my wife's study, which overlooks Jarvis Bay. And Jarvis Bay is on the coast, uh, probably about 40 minutes from Wollongong. Uh, It's a beautiful area. It's uh, a big, huge bay that has dolphin pods and lots of fish and a naval base where they do a lot of their training. Clear water, beautiful white sands, and uh, we have a, a place, a house, um, in a place called Vincentia, which is part of the Jarvis Bay area. Our views across the Jarvis Bay are superb. It's not particularly comfortable at the moment, but mm-hmm. um, beautiful area. And my wife and I bought the, this place as a, it's a renovator, but it was to be half of our life that would allow us to be at the coast for part of our time and back in Canberra for the other part. As I went into retirement, she's quite a way off that yet. Um, We're obviously a few years between us, 
but it's it's a beautiful place and I love it. But certainly the last, say, five, six months has been frenetic activity with me doing lots of renovations, um, a builder doing a new bathroom and a new laundry because we only had one bathroom and there were a few interesting idiosyncrasies of this house, to say the least. <laughs> but lovely place. Colin, uh, Jarvis Bay hasn't always been home, though. I note that you are actually a, um, what we might call a Taswegian. Your uh, your roots go back to Hobart, I believe. Maybe just tell us a little bit about growing up in Hobart in Tasmania. We, we recently had um, Amanda Linton as one of our guests on Heart, Heart of the Bookkeeper, and she described a little bit about her growing up years in Hobart. I'm not going to preempt anything. I think you probably go back a little bit further than Amanda. So uh, what, what was Hobart like growing up in, let's say, the 1950s, for example, and mum and dad, Marguerite and Maxwell, uh, maybe just a little bit about your influences that came through from them growing up in the 1950s in, uh, in Hobart in Tasmania? Yeah, I grew up on the other side of the river uh, in a place called Belle Reve. Um, most Great people cricket would ground, know by the way, because the cricket ground. Yeah, that's right. love, love. Oh, you're yep. right in my hitting zone now, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I lived about probably five minutes walk from the cricket ground. Wow. In in those days, it was um, the Clarence Football Club and the uh, Clarence Cricket Club. Mm. Uh, a different sort of a ground. It wasn't as as flat. Um, and it used to head its way down towards the river. But a big ground, always a very big ground. And uh, I suppose in my uh, younger days, I spent a lot of time up there because um, I was very interested in Aussie rules and I eventually played for Clarence as part of that through the under-19s and uh, the reserves. And then uh, with the university got in the way, that put me out of action for a little while. But I went back to football and continued playing football in Tasmania through to 35, age 35. Wow. So had a great time. Belreve, uh, we always thought that the eastern shore uh, in uh, of Hobart was by far the best place to be. Hobart was for the other side and it was colder in Hobart because uh, mm-hmm. it sits right underneath the mountain. So you're on the sunny side of uh, Hobart. Lovely beach, lived um, about 200 metres, maybe 300 metres from the beach, although people in New South Wales and the like would complain bitterly about how cold it is. We didn't know that it was cold. We just knew that it was lovely beach and you went swimming and you did everything. So a really a good upbringing, to be honest. We didn't have much. Uh, Dad was um, uh, and Mum were both... Uh, uh, returnees from the war, uh, Second World War. Dad had severe post-traumatic stress problems and that went through until he finally was retired by the government. Mum came from Queensland and uh, had to move to this out-of-the-way place in Tasmania, which in those days was quite difficult because um, travelling uh, between the two places took a long time. They were, they were a propeller aircraft, uh, so you can imagine wow. instead of a quick flip across from Hobart to Canberra, say in an hour and a half, well, it was three and a half hours to fly from Hobart to Melbourne. 
Yeah. And, uh, and that was when I was in my late teens. So you can imagine um, for mum it was difficult. Uh, she was um, separated from her family. Mm. For dad it's where his family was but um, we certainly were, I often have been known to say we grew up on the other side of the railway line. <laughs> um, not that there was any much railway uh, on our side of the river but the concept was there. We didn't have a car. Anywhere I needed to go was either by bike, walk or catch a bus. And it was great. We didn't have holidays, but I was uh, an avid scout. And so uh, for me, scout camps and hikes and that were our holidays. And that's how we thought everybody else were growing up anyway. Yeah, I've noted the scout influence and I want to sort of get into that in a, in a little while. In particular, I note uh, you've explained to me that you had some serious influence in your life through the scouting movement and and, a, and an individual person that we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. But oh, look, I've got to attest, uh, I played a state cricket carnival in Hobart in 1981 we rocked up from Western Australia, as West Australians do, in shorts and a T-shirt. It was it snowed on Mount Wellington on Boxing Day in 1981. It's the coldest Colin I've ever been in my life. And I played cricket in England as well. I can remember walking out to bat and I couldn't feel my hands. It was that cold. So I, I, I was wishing I was playing on now on Bell Reeve because that was over the other side on the warmer side apparently. So uh, <laughs> what, what was yep. it that um, Dad did in his career? Was it something that influenced you later with your career choice? In some ways, yes. It was very interesting. Dad um, was a, a carpenter before he went to the war. Um, when he came back, uh, he became a public servant, uh, mostly with Postmaster General's Department, right. uh, which later became Australia Post, split off from what is now Telstra. So mm. in the old days, it was Postal and Telstra were one thing. He was... Um, a relatively low-level public servant uh, all of his life, the equivalent of what these days is an APS4. So someone who would have been these days um, leading, doing phone work and things of that nature. Yeah. Most of that was because Dad's post-traumatic stress caused him a lot of problems and um, basically he certainly struggled at times with nerves and uh, illness and the like. But he worked very hard. He looked after us as best he could. Mum uh, became a primary school teacher uh, in Tasmania and uh, went through, I suppose, essentially the, the TAFE-type system, what you would call it today. It was uh, the tech college in those days and became qualified through that, the same as Dad got his carpentry through the tech college. And funnily enough, um, years and years later, I ended up tutoring in business statistics at the tech college. Wow. Um, one of those funny things. But, uh, yeah, yeah it, it was yeah, it was hard, in, hard for both my parents, but, again, Dad built most of our house. He bought the house post the war for pretty well what it cost him, what they paid him uh, after he left the services, so about £300 in those days. And then he had to build in the um, 
the verandas and he built another piece on the back of the house and uh, eventually it became a small three-bedroom type house where three boys and mum and dad lived. One toilet outside originally, eventually <laughs> inside when I was about 14. But uh, dad, being a public servant, also used to do um, uh, managing the public service exams. And in those days, to get into the public service, you had to sit a series of exams. And how well you did at those is the order of merit for going into the public service. Mm. It wasn't about university education or anything like that. It was Mm. get through the exams. So from about um, year seven uh, in my schooling, I used to do these exams. Mm. Uh, Dad would bring home the papers and we would just go through them. By the time that I was in year nine, I could actually manage pretty well all of these and it covered English, maths, general history, clerical studies, which essentially was things such as comparing numbers and figures and seeing where mistakes were, peculiar exams to put it mildly. But it did, funnily enough, set me up for when I first sat the public service exam to get in because I I sat it twice. Once when I first left year 12 with my HSC because I didn't manage to get a Commonwealth scholarship at the time so I needed to go to work for a year to get enough money to go to uni. I did sit for three subjects again that year and got my Commonwealth so that meant I was fine but I had to get a job. So I sat the public service exam, came first in the, in Australia and got a job straight away. I did that twice in my time. So Dad had an influence. <laughs> History was written, Colin, because we'll, we'll get into what happened next in a moment. One, one of the things I love about um, doing these podcasts already is that you're, you're just swelling me with memories that I'd forgotten about because I actually sat what was the telecom exam when I was in about year 10 and I had dreams of joining what was then known as telecom. So, and I, I'd locked that one clearly right at the back of my memory until you've just raised it then. So I reckon uh, some of the listeners right now are enjoying the fact that you're unlocking some memories. Uh, maybe it's about outside toilets. I'm not sure, but <laughs> um, I, I'm, loving, I'm loving your memories of, of Hobart and, and the processes that got you into the, uh, the public service. I'm keen to make sure that we don't lose the timeline here. So at this stage, you're still in, in Hobart, in Belrive. You, um, I see here that um, you actually lived in Tasmania until the late 80s, early 90s. Is that correct? So all of your journey at this point was there. Yeah, very much so. I, I suppose I had a whole life almost in, in Tasmania. Yeah. Uh, in Belrive for 40 years of my Mm. life. So I built a career there. I went to university there. I ran scout the scout troop. Um, I coached canoe polo at the local school. I played canoe polo, played football, played indoor cricket, coached indoor cricket, had a a really strong and active lifestyle, bought a service station at 35. So I wanted to to ask you about that. Why would you – I mean, people ask me, I own a barbershop, and people go, why? And I I really can't actually answer that. So so let's get into this one. Why did you buy a motor service station? 
Yeah, it's a really good question, Rob. Um, I, I suppose I always had a, an interest in a bent in cars. Remembering that we didn't have a car until I was about 14 um, and our first car was a Simca, a French Simca. And um, I suppose over the next few years, the three boys and us and, and Dad spent a lot of time learning how to keep these things going. So over a number of years, probably, say, six or eight, we ended up with 26 of them in the backyard. <laughs> and we bought them very cheaply and as something went wrong, you took it off one of the other ones. So we learned a lot and, and in those days you could, well, I could change a head gasket, which you probably don't even know what they are these days, but I could change a head gasket or change a head or put a piston in an engine in about 45 minutes wow. and have the car running. Um, you could do that in those days. Uh, it was not unusual. We we used to convert our uh, column shift Simcas into floor shifts because Simca came out with a floor shift top. And so when you bought one that had a floor shift, you'd just take the, the lid off the uh, gearbox and put a top on it. So it, it was that kind of influence. And then uh, a mate of mine was a mechanic and he was also the assistant scout leader with me at the uh, the troop that we ran. And uh, he'd been talking for quite a while about wanting to get out of just being a mechanic for someone else and running one. So things were pretty quiet in the ATO. Where I was in sales tax, the only way I could get promotion was for someone to die. Um, they were all the older group sitting above me and they weren't going anywhere. <laughs> and uh, so this opportunity arose. He was a mechanic. We said, well, let's see if we can afford to buy it. So went to the bank, did a bit of negotiating, got a few knockbacks, found a bank that said okay, and uh, we bought the darn place. And five <laughs> years later, we sold it. It's uh, a really interesting part of my career because one of the really – different things that occurred was that not only was I learning about running a small business, mm. but at the same time I was working in the tax office, uh, mostly in technical areas, in advising, audit, that sort of thing, in sales tax, and it would, had been quiet. And all of a sudden that thing called people needed to die, well, they didn't die. What they did was my boss moved. He'd had enough doing this particular job. So he moved out of it and a couple of other guys retired and all of a sudden there were opportunities. So here I am working 40 hours a week in the servo, 40 hours out a week in the tax office wow. and um, suddenly the opportunities arose and the pathway opened and yeah. I got promoted and I got promoted again and we still had the service station. <laughs> so uh, it was a frenetic time, which I couldn't have done if I'd been married. Let's be really fair about it. That stage I wasn't, and um, so it became sort of work 90 hours, run a scout troop, coach canoe polo, um, play indoor cricket, 
and basically you sleep in between, I think. Sounds like retirement. Um, you, you, <laughs> you, you, you haven't ma- you've maintained the rage there, I reckon, uh, Colin. So, look, uh, uh, yeah. a piece of the missing jigsaw for me is obviously went to uni, studied... Basically engineering, maths, science. Okay, and then... And where does that take you in the APA? Yeah, and, that's where yeah. that's the missing domino for me. Yeah, so you'll have to fill that little piece in. It's, it's, I suppose, like what I say to my son and he's struggling to really know what he wants to do and I said to him, well, mm. at 68 or 67 I retired from the ATO having done Lord only knows how many different roles and retrained in, in a lot of areas and I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Mm. Um, but I don't have a lot of interesting things. Mm. So I suppose... Because I went to a Catholic school and you were very limited in a Catholic school in those days with what subjects you could do, I ended up studying maths, economics and chemistry and physics. So you come out of HSC, you're heading to uni because that's what everybody was supposed to do, except that my headmaster in year 10 told my dad to go and get me a trade because I was bloody useless and I wasn't going to get anywhere at HSC. (laughs) Well, he was wrong. Famous last words. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I think it was a stupid thing for him to have said. He just didn't pick up. I was a bit, just a bit lazy, that's all. Um, So in year 11, I matriculated. Instead of year 12, I finished in year 11, then did a second year to um, get marks up to what I thought would be reasonable to get to uni. That wasn't successful, but my best subject, funnily enough, was economics. And I loved economics, but because I had all the sciences and things and had a bent in engineering, I thought, I'm going to study that. Wasn't successful. I didn't finish the degree. I sort of got to basically the end of year two, did a bit more and then thought, well, not, this isn't what I want to do because I only went there because I wanted to be a draftsman. I did engineering drafting. I worked for the public service in the state public service, the PWD, as a draftsman. So I trained as a draftsman for a year. Mm. And uh, so to me, the engineering during design was the bent, the drafting side, rather than the rest. So anyway, Mm. I ended up leaving uni at uh, year two and a half and sat the public service exam, topped it again, went straight into the public service, and I chose the ATO because, and in those days you chose, you gave one, two, three by order of what you wanted to do. Um, my father said to me, go to the ATO, and he said, it's Catholic, which will help you. Um, <laughs> it's big. And it's got a bit of sense to it, whereas the rest of them don't make much sense to me. So I chose the ATO and went there. So there's the gap. That's how it happened. Later, I studied uh, Bachelor of Business uh, and that's when I picked up my law and accounting side of things. It happened much later when in my late 20s. 
Well, the revelations just keep coming here on Heart of the Bookkeeper. Uh, I had no <laughs> idea, no concept at all that um, the ATO had a, has a clear Catholic bent. I'm, I'm, I can just see a, a lot of <laughs> a lot, a lot of other, <laughs> a lot of people scratching their head right now listening to this. But uh, uh, you're giving us some amazing insights here, Colin. <laughs> I'm loving every second of it. So into the ATO and straight into the sales tax team. I'm gathering. No, I, I actually started in cashiers. In those right. days, we actually had cash registers and uh, agents and people came in with a piece of paper and uh, their tax return, apart from an income tax return, was actually brought into the counter and you then and they brought payment, mostly either checks or cash, and we uh, went through that process. So my first year and a half or so was in cashiers, and then my, after that, I moved into the assessing school and started doing income tax returns like everybody else did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and again, an amazing place to end up. Why I ended up in cashiers and everybody else went, out, went to more uh, sexy places, I don't know, but it was good <laughs> fun, really good fun. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about uh, most of the listeners are clearly bookkeepers and and have a fascination for all things bookkeeping. Of course, nineteen eighty eight thereabouts, you you've um, started to really get your head inside sales tax. From what I believe, I was starting a business around about then, getting involved in a, a very significant um, entity that involved sales tax calculations, let's put it that way. And for about the next, well, I would say until the GST came in, I was completely lost because I would uh, ring a supplier one week and he would say, uh, this particular item is such and such a price plus uh, 15% sales tax. And then the next week I'd ring and it would be the same product, but suddenly it would be 30% sales tax. So I could never fathom it. I could not wrap my head around it at all. So maybe do you want to just uh, – you um, you mentioned here in some information that you provided to me that from 1988 you spent some time travelling Australia actually trying to educate people on sales tax. So maybe educate me a little <laughs> bit and the listeners on how sales tax work. But maybe I can educate people a little bit about um, how the ATO changed as well. Correct. Um, often, I, I know I've often heard tax agents and, and BAS agents say they make it up on the go <laughs> and you ring them up and they make up something. And, and funnily enough, I, I have to be really honest, um, in my early days in sales tax, it wasn't so much that we made it up. It's just that there was a thing called LAW, which is what the legislation said, and then there was a thing called LORE, which is what we thought it actually meant. And uh, if the courts thought that it was different, we just ignored the courts and found another way to do it our way. <laughs> so that worked very well for a number of years because um, in the early days in particular, pretty well all of the advisors in sales tax in the, in the private sector were ex-ATO people. So they kind of followed the same pathway. Times were changing, though, and there were more lawyers out there and more people challenging the ATO. And we got to a point where over probably two or three years, we lost uh, something like 18 cases out of 21 in the courts. And at the time, my boss, John Landau, who had a 
huge influence on my career, was really concerned about this and he had gathered together the people who were doing the training in the ATO. Now, as it happens, I because I was in Hobart, you became a jack-of-all-trades. There was only some 18-odd people in the whole of sales tax in Hobart. So you had to be an advising person. You had to know the law backwards. You had to be able to do counter-inquiries. You had to do audits. So you did pretty well everything. And I was the training officer as well. Mm. And I was doing technical training. And so John Landau grabbed me in Adelaide. We went for a course. They were teaching us how to train people, which was all good fun and that. And he grabbed me and he said, um, I can't take any more of it. We, we're going to lose more and more cases. And he said to me, well, why? And I said, well, we kind of follow what our predecessors have told us what we needed to do. So there were some of our very senior people who had a book and in their book they had written down what each thing meant within the law, in the Exemptions and Classifications Act. So I was sent to sit down with a guy called um, Adrian Firmstone. He's now deceased. He uh, eventually was the uh, Senior Indirect Taxes Partner for Ernst & Young, but a, a remarkable character running his own uh, practice and... <laughs> I was charged with the responsibility of talking to Adrian about how do we create a legislative statutory interpretation course that we could teach the ATO people what the courts had said and that we could actually inculcate into our staff, you need to use statutory interpretation concepts to interpret the law. Mm. Pretty outrageous in those days. Um, <laughs> the courts were all black letter law and uh, so we were struggling with that. In many ways, our interpretation was more around logic and, and what was intended as against what the law actually said. So mm. we had a drafting problem with OPC, but anyway, that was how it happened. So Adrian and I produced two courses an A and a B, A just for beginners and B for the really tough ones. And we then set up a contract with him and he and I and some of his people from Firmstone and Partners and later Ernst and & Young and uh, some from Coopers, we taught that around the country to all of our staff and we offered it to the uh, consultants as well in mm. the trade. And interestingly enough, we sold so many courses uh, or so many places we, when we what we were doing was we, we'd have a, a course that would be half external people and half internal, which made for a great dynamic because the arguments and discussions were fantastic. But we sold so many of them that it ended up that, that it became a plus for the ATO because we actually were selling more than it was costing us to run them. Ah, uh, well, there you go. That that Catholic influence was clearly coming out at that yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. They were, they were really successful and, and I think those that went through it at the time, those that are left, and there aren't many now, unfortunately, um, would say that that's when we really started in the sales tax world to understand that statutory interpretation was really, really important mm. and that you had to follow what the courts were saying and the, and it was on both sides. We, we mm. began, I think we, we all grew up 
and started to understand that the law wasn't what we intended it to be. It was what got passed by Parliament and how the courts interpreted it. So it, it was a very... It was a really good time that led to uh, the government saying, let's rewrite sales tax. This is yep. pre-GST, which yep. we did, and that was a huge project. Um, delivered in 92, we totally mm-hmm. rewrote it to make it, I suppose, more logical, get the purpose through and make sure that people would be able to understand what was actually meant. So we, for the first time... I spent some time with a, a person who was very good in um, map drawer and we introduced into explanatory material pictures, pictures, flowcharts. That's the beginning of seeing flowcharts and pictures in explanatory material. Yeah. Um, that's wow. where it came from. We, we did that. I drew some amazing things in that sales tax one. Uh, great fun. Much resistance in the ATO because I'm a very visual person. I can mm. I work in words, but I'm very visual. I'm in I'm in mm. the middle, which is mm. unusual. Our law people are generally on the word side, so getting them to do pictures and show through flowcharts how law worked was a real challenge. It was hugely beneficial to me many years later when I went on to the consolidation project when I came back to Australia in 2002, 2003, and I was able to take the whole consolidation legislation and design and build an A3 picture of the building blocks of it. That then became the – was very interesting – the OPC, the Office of Parliamentary Council, took those pictures and stuck them up on their walls with all the teams doing the law to show them how it was supposed to be working. And it was it was a real eye-opener talking to those guys because they were all doing bits and pieces and none of them really understood how it all linked. Being able to build a picture showed them how it linked and just as in the sales tax days where I was able to find the, the holes and the mistakes before we put it into law, in consolidation we were able to show them how it should link and be able to say these are the pieces we haven't done yet. Cutting-edge stuff really for those times. Uh, I mean, yes. and one of the things I, I've come to learn certainly as an educator through post the TASA and, you know, the introduction of CERT for for bookkeepers and, and BAS agents is that most bookkeepers generally are visual themselves. You draw a picture mm-hmm. of a process and they'll get that even better than the numbers itself. So I, I think you were ahead of your time there. I think that's extremely insightful stuff that you were, you guys were doing there. i got to say, though, I must admit, I, I still think that um, the introduction of the GST in 2000, probably for many of us in business was a relief. Uh, sales tax by that time had really still, even though you had clearly uh, played a role in simplifying, it was still a bit of a mind bend for many of us in business. So GST, 10%. Made it very, uh, very easy to unpack at that point. <laughs> yeah, look, we predicted even back in those days that the a VAT would ultimately be where we would go. The government at the time didn't need to do it; didn't need to move to that. the The concept of, of the VAT was that you would you would actually tax goods and services. Sales tax only taxed goods, yes. so you, you it was a small part of 
a, a bigger opportunity. Mm. Um, eventually, government saw the opportunity to uh, sort of take some of the impact, some of the impact of income tax and the like out of system, and put it into a consumption type world. So, mm. if you consumed, you paid that kind mm. of thing. Ultimately, uh, I predicted um, back in the early 90s uh, that that's what was going to happen and that the work we did on sales tax was um, really just to take sales tax through until someone made the decision to do it. It took them 10 years, 12 years to get there. A couple of goes. Well, that's all right. It's, yeah, a couple of goes. I'd already introduced the VAT overseas by the time Australia had done it. So it was. Uh... Let's talk about that because the listeners may not know this about Colin Walker. Those who uh, have have followed your career a little bit, but um, 1993, you have moved from. At that point, you're in Canberra. You had moved from yes. Hobart to Canberra, if I've got the timeline right, and you've moved to a place called now. Correct me if I get this wrong, Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan. Now, I've got to tell the listeners, I, I had to actually Google where is Kyrgyzstan. I, I'm clearly very ignorant when it comes to uh, my geography. You talk about the fact that, you know, you love the fact of growing up in Belrive and Tasmania and being close to the water. I reckon Kyrgyzstan even trumps Canberra for not being anywhere near water. It's, uh, from, from what I can work out, it is about the most landlocked place on the planet just about. But... Uh, Maybe tell us why Kyrgyzstan and a little bit about the journey in Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, it's um, your reaction is, was exactly the reaction I got, that my mother gave me uh, when I told her that's where I was headed. Um, and it's not surprising because when I was first asked to go, I had no idea where it was either. <laughs> but um, Kyrgyzstan is essentially in Central Asia, it's uh, part of the former Soviet Union. It sits very high. The capital, Bishkek, is 800 metres above sea level. There is a, a gold mine, Kumtor gold mine, at 3,500 metres uh, high, which creates its own problems. There is a huge inland lake, Saltwater Lake, third largest in the world, and you can actually see it on your globe if you look at your, your globe. That's its, um, and the water all comes down from the Tian Shen Ranges, which is part of the Himalayas, basically. So an amazing country, just beautiful, amazing country, very much of that Mongol, Turkey, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, all that type of people. Um, I was just trying to think of, of his name, um, famous boxer. And his son is just just one. Oh, Kostyzu, Kostyzu, Kostyzu comes from Kazakhstan, which is the very large country right next to Kyrgyzstan, right. and sitting right underneath uh, Russia. And yep. Kazakhstan is where Russia sends all its rockets to the moon, etc., or up right. into the satellites. So, yeah, really, really interesting place. How did I get there? That's um, that was very interesting. I was working on uh, New Law Design in Canberra and my boss at the time was John Crotty. John Crotty had gone to the IMF as, a, uh, to, as part of fiscal affairs and he'd worked there for a while and he came back as a second commissioner. 
and he had decided that he was going back and he was going to take over fiscal affairs in there. They offered him the job. Uh, very brilliant man, ex-deputy commissioner in, in Melbourne and uh, really screwed into the world and uh, policy around taxation, customs and the like and admin. And he um, apparently asked my immediate boss whether there was anybody that was a very practical person, had a good business knowledge and business bent, who could, who would not just follow the rules, who would create things to, that would work and worked in the ATO. And my boss said, well, we've only got one and that's him. And we got him from Hobart and um, there's no one else that fits anything like that. So John called me up and he said, um, I want you to go to Kyrgyzstan with me uh, in about three months' time and we're going to do a review of their tax system and their administration and uh, we'll put up a paper and see what they want to do with it. So I said, okay, sounds good to me. Uh, So he went back to the IMF. We went to Kyrgyzstan. We did a a three-week tour, put forward some recommendations, particularly around administration, but some policy things around VAT and things like that. And in, I think, the last day that we were there, uh, we were talking to the Minister of Finance and John said, oh, by the way, here's your new new advisor. He'll be here around about August. And he hadn't talked to me. He hadn't talked to the ATO or anybody. So the Minister was very um, happy about that. So uh, I went back to Australia and said to my boss, um, the IMF want me to go there for a year, which is what they offered me. And um, the ATO were very kind and they gave me leave without pay for that. I went and explained that to my parents and uh, my mother said, you've got to be joking. Um, (laughs) Why would you go to a place like that? And it's part of Russia. And uh, my dad said, as he always did, um, what a great opportunity. Go and have some fun. Go and do something. So Good on, Dad. It was my same thing that happened with the uh, the service station. My mum was pretty uh, negative about the idea. My dad thought it was a great idea, so I went and did it. I reckon um, mum might have just been protective maybe uh, rather than I, I think so. I think that's yeah. the, a lot of mums, yes. She yes. was very supportive after the event on all those occasions. So, yeah. Yep. So I went there and uh, what started as a one year, uh, the minister managed to wrangle to three years. And in that time, we rebuilt the tax administration. Uh, I did a lot of work with customs. Um, We wrote the VAT law. And just for the record, VAT law in Kyrgyzstan is 26 pages. (laughs) Totally. <laughs> we can only dream. That's the intro here in Australia, isn't it? You know. To- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember ringing um, Barry Russell, who was the ATO guy who was introducing GST, and saying to him, "Why did you make it so big? We did it in twenty-six pages." So yeah, he wasn't impressed, but uh, it has expanded a bit since. But it's still a very small document. And we used a lot of common sense and really principle-based drafting to get a product. But I think most of my time in Kyrgyzstan was spent 
trying to build a revenue base whilst the mafia tried to unbuild my revenue base. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it was, it was great. It, uh, challenges, obviously, of trying to learn enough Russian to understand, to you know, get your food and accommodation and deal with all those things, as well as um, deal with being on your own. Uh, at various mm. stages. Uh, English at that stage was very little in the country. I did have an interpreter, but he was seven hours a day type interpreter. Mm. So you find your own ways of doing things. So, uh, But it really a lovely place and a place where I, I met my wife. Now, I wanted to get to that. I wanted to get to that. We, we, you've told us about the uh, the 26-pager in, in Kyrgyzstan that revolutionised the GST or VAT over there, but I'm going to beg it to suggest that the trip to Kyrgyzstan had a more significant result, and um, I'm guessing her name is Larissa. Is that correct? That's correct, Rob. You've got it right. Excellent. <laughs> so, so Larissa's come along and swept you off your feet or vice versa? Uh, yeah, no, she she swept me, yeah. Certainly <laughs> uh, enamoured herself to me. She was um, uh, a young kid, you know, mid-20s, um, working for USAID uh, as an interpreter, translator. And uh, because I was working very closely with USAID and, and their VAT advisor in particular, and she was working primarily for him. So we got to know each other and um, eventually uh, got married over there. And Anthony and Alexandra, have I got that uh, right? Are the, yeah. are the, uh, the result of all of that? Yep, that's correct. Anthony's 21 and Alex is 19 and uh, they are the result of that. And we've now been married as of November last this year, 25 years. Wow, that that's that is fantastic, and all the result of a country that your mum cautioned you on going to because she'd never heard of it before. <laughs> so there you go, yeah, mums out there, don't hold your your boys back because you never know what the the end result will be. A, a wonderful marriage and two fabulous kids. So there there you go. Yep. So and and a wife who's much more intelligent than me too, Rob. She's right. Okay. Got, she has four Ooh. degrees. Good work there, so, Colin. I, I like that. I, I think the ladies listening in on the podcast have just given you a big tick there, so well done. Um, <laughs> 1997, Kyrgyzstan, you'd think, oh, ready to go back to Australia, but no, you, you go, oh, I've got, I got to go and reinvent another country here and you land in Fiji. Yes, I did. we did come back. Larissa migrated uh, with me when I came back in beginning of 97 to Australia and uh, so she got her um, permanent residency in the tick to migrate. So she came and I went back to the tax office for about five months. The IMF all the way through were trying to get me to go to, to Fiji. Eventually I agreed to that. Um, the ATO was going through a, a tough time and I was not happy, and uh, so we shipped off to Fiji to look after the 16 Pacific Island countries for the IMF at a place called the Pacific Financial Technical Assistance Centre. So 97 and stayed there till 2002, and uh, 
much travel, 16 countries to look after and try to assist to redevelop, um, do law change, build administrations, build revenue bases, sort out the corruption in some cases, really frenetic trying to, to deal with so many countries. You're on the go two to three weeks a month. You fly to anywhere from Fiji to Tonga, which was only about an hour-odd flight, but you could also be flying to Palau, which meant that um, Palau's up in Micronesia. So you would go out through Guam, yep. uh, so Hawaii to Guam to um Palau, and that would take you about 20-odd hours. Mm. And I learnt myself, I, I spent a, a, um, a period of time in Papua New Guinea teaching bookkeeping in 2012, I think it was, and I was stunned to find out that their VAT differs from province to province or state to state. It wasn't <laughs> consistent across the whole country. It was, yeah. It's a, so I'm, I'm in awe of the fact that you were able to even get your head inside it. I, I think each of those provinces had uh, had a 26-page document. So I'm wondering if you, you created those as well. Was Papua New Guinea on your list? or uh, no? Papua New Guinea <laughs> was one of my countries, but um, you can blame most of theirs on Australia. Right, yes. Yeah. I did most of their stuff and, um, yeah, I did I did undo some Aussie stuff, I must admit, in different countries but because they were a bit stupid in how they did it, to be very honest, but um, other things they did were quite remarkable and really, really good. In Fiji, they did some amazing work uh, in customs, so I really didn't do much in customs in Fiji because Aussie were just brilliant. But I did stop them from bringing in a VAT in, um, not VAT, an income tax in Benuatu. Uh, They were keen to do that and they felt that that was the best way to build the revenue base in Benuatu. I managed to convince the Prime Minister that that was not sane and that the with 300-odd islands and a very um, low level of wholesaling and a lot of retail but small retail, um, all they needed to do was fix up their customs and excise uh, side of things and they would have the same revenue and NBAT. So that's how income tax is still not in Vanuatu so far. And- Time doesn't allow. I could uh, go on for hours with you, Colin, but I'm just wondering if the listeners have just picked up, you know, Colin's just slipped in, a, you know, he was having a casual chat with a prime minister and convinced them of this and, <laughs> and the other thing. You know, not, not the sort of thing that we wander around. I, you know, I, I'm struggling to convince my uh, my local, uh, you know, bakery to cook the bread I want it to. And here you are just wandering around talking to prime ministers and premiers and people's <laughs> amazing stuff. I, I guess the bit that I really want to now get to is so uh, after sort of a bit of globe trotting and and um, amazing work overseas, you've come back to Australia in the sort of uh, early two thousands. Jump back into the ATO from what I can gather here in Australia, and I guess the thing that really, especially our listeners would be keen to to hear is you clearly became involved with the process that has become effectively a defining moment for bookkeepers and that was the Baz agent regime or can be termed in many different ways. Can you you tell us a little bit about that and and how you got involved with that particular time? Yeah, it's um, before I go there, I'll just, on a bookkeeper side, 
Um, I have a nice little anecdote about um, the importance of bookkeepers. I went to a place called Niue, and Niue is a little island with about 1,600, 1,800 people um, further across from Tonga heading towards America. It is oh. part of the Pacific Island countries. It's got a, it's got a national bank and it's got a tax uh, system and an administration and customs, all of about 10 people. Um, but... I was there helping the Tax and Customs Administration and the National Bank lady grabbed me outside uh, at lunchtime one day and said, look, um, we're having real trouble with small business here. We're trying to give them loans and help them through, but they don't know how to do books and can you come and help us? So in those days there was very little computerisation. There was quicken and things around in Australia. You could have tried it there, but no one used computers over there mm-hmm. except the tax system. So I actually went back to my old days of learning double-entry bookkeeping and stuff like that, and I built a training course around how you do books. So I wow. actually drew up a set of books for them and printed these things out and gave them all a set of these and said, here's where you put it here, here's your cash, here's your debits and all this, here's how you, you move it across into your profit and loss and everything. And I ran this training course there for two weeks of a night after normal work before I flew back. And the interesting thing that, that we got out of it was that when we looked at the tax side of it for them, no one was making any money. They just didn't know they weren't making any money. No. What was happening is they their families would come in, extended family, and get stuff out of the shop and things like that, and never pay for anything. Mm. So, mm. Um, but yeah, introducing basic bookkeeping and keeping of books to New A was a, a real highlight. I've still got the nice letter that the National Bank sent back to my boss to say it was a marvelous thing to have done and. They loved it. So there you go. There's where That's how vital bookkeepers are. You, you, you're, again, ticking some boxes here, I reckon, uh, Colin, but uh, you're probably telling most of the listeners something they already believe they know. So um, <laughs> the, I think for me the educational piece around bookkeeping going right back to the 90s and 2000s is something that we probably need to revisit at times. You know, we we've mm. sometimes forget that just – as we've called out a few times already on this podcast, just going back to working with good old-fashioned debits and credits is an amazing experience that reveals a lot. We talk about, you talked about uh, drawing pictures for sales tax. You know, in some ways, uh, the good old-fashioned T-ledgers draw a picture like you can't get when you look at it through the lens of a computerised accounting system. So great great anecdote there, great anecdote, Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, to get back to your question, I'm sorry I sort of beard all over the no, place. No, I'm glad you did. Great, great context. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so I came back in 2002 and, yes, the Bass Agent regime was coming in in that period. I remember, funnily enough, as an indirect tax person with a bent on indirect tax, it always used to amaze me that the ATO used to quite often when I come back, put me in income tax. 
and I hated income tax. I, I, <laughs> I published a paper for the IMF back in the late 90s explaining why it was absolute stupidity for a country to have an income tax and why it was that the large developed countries had them and most of it was is basically because it's historical, it's there and it's very difficult to change. So they, what happens is it gets more and more flipping complex. So anyway, I came back. They offered me, funnily enough, for the ATO, three different opportunities. So I said, I'll have the hardest. That's just the way I am. So they said, oh, you can go and do consolidation. Ah, oh, bloody hell. Excuse my language. <laughs> that, that was really very difficult work. And from there they then put me on the review of international tax and from there, I got promoted into being an assistant commissioner and I took over the leg side, legislation side in personal tax, so all the individual side. For those a little bit older, you will remember a thing called childcare rebate, which the ATO introduced. Um, that was my baby. Uh, I designed it and built it and I uh, got the first pre-filling coming out of the ATO. We mm. took all the data out of Centrelink and pre-filled it into income tax returns to give people their rebate. And the reason we had to do it is because only about 30% the, uh, of the people who had an entitlement and we, had, we knew who, who could get it actually claimed it in their income tax returns. It was too hard for them. Mm. So... We decided we would do it ourselves for them. So we gave them their money. The next year it became a pre-filled thing. People didn't need to do anything. So that was the commencement of pre-filling. Mm. Uh, and as you've now seen where it's, where it's taken us. So having done that, I then went back to law for a while and got into the very, very complex stuff, um, which we won't talk about. Had a lot of fun, mostly around managing technical people and trying to get them thinking my way and um, utilising the amazing skills that they had. And the ATO is just an amazing treasure chest of knowledge and ability in law. It's just, it's scary, some of those people. They are just brilliant. Mm. And then from there, minerals resource rent tax, um, short-lived very complex, really interesting work dealing with the top end of town. Not very popular here in WA, I've got to tell you. Uh, no, Colin, it wasn't. It, um, no. It, was very, it was very interesting work for a while there. With the demise of that, I was offered a uh, an opportunity by uh, my boss who was taking a voluntary redundancy. She said, I think I've got the perfect job for you. You're out there, you're talk to people, they listen to you, you're respected, you go there. And that was a thing called TPOWs, Tax Practitioner and Lodgement Services. Knew nothing about it, had anything to do with it. The only thing I'd really had to do with tax practitioners up until then was mostly a guy called Frank Brass who ran H&R Block. And right. Frank and I did a lot of work together at different stages to try to make childcare rebate work and a few other things that we were playing around with in personal tax. So suddenly I moved to T-Powers and I was given the job of looking after the relationship with tax practitioners. And a guy called Matthew Addison um, 
brought to my attention within about six or eight months that there was another group who weren't tax agents. They were BAS agents. And uh, he began my education in (laughs) no uncertain terms. It was a wonderful education because I really started to understand a lot better what it was that these tax agents and BAS agents and bookkeepers actually did and how poorly we seemed to be servicing their needs Mm. Um, and the difficulties they were having with the way we were doing things. So I suppose that's where I came to really understand and through two people, mainly Matthew and Peter Thorpe from the other uh, major accounting body, uh, in the Bass Agent Bookkeeper space, both marvellous people. Our friends at the ABA, yes. Yep. At the yeah, ABA. We're, uh, we're very closely people. with them. Yep. yep. Between Peter and Matthew, they continued my education and encouraged me to learn more. And I started talking at both of sorts of events and found the most amazing people, uh, mm. primarily female, wonderful people, didn't complain got on with the job, had great ideas and were just so easy to deal with. So that's mm. how I came to begin that process of understanding this world, the ICB mm. world and those, yeah. So we're sadly going to start to wrap up this particular podcast. And like I said before, I'd like a way, way more time than uh, what, what we've been given today. But in reflection of the last probably six or seven years up to the point where you have retired and, and you've now become a director of the ICB, can you tell the listeners, do you think, do you genuinely think the ATO in particular now has a clearer understanding of the bookkeeping practitioners, the the BAS agents that we refer to now, the, the professional bookkeeper that we're starting to use the terminology of more and more? Do you, do you think the ATO holistically has a better understanding of that or is there still a distance to go, do you think? I honestly believe there's a distance to go. It took me, I think, three years at least, hard labour, maybe four, to really start to change people's attitudes within the ATO. It's not that the ATO and the staff didn't respect professionals it's just that they didn't understand what they did nor how what the ATO did impacted the lives of the bookkeeper bass agent tax agent so to me there is still a way to go I I set a goal and normally assistant commissioners last three years in a job and then they moved on and I stayed six There were a number of reasons for it. Um, One of them was uh, that I I felt that we were making progress. We had made some pretty significant moves to move to developing online services for agents, which was taking us out of what I call the Neanderthal period of um, Mm -hmm. online services into modern technology that would help. Moving that into software is was part of that as well. Um, getting the understanding, though, across the ATO of the important role that practitioners play is still a developing game. There are a lot of really, really good people in the ATO who get it 
and who are working very well with the major professional bodies and the professionals to um, advance the way we do things. I think if I've succeeded in one thing in the role, it was making ATO people go out and consult and talk with the professional associations and the agents before we actually did things. In the old days, what we did is we worked the other way. We worked out what we thought agents needed and we delivered that and then we're very unhappy when we were told that's not what we wanted. Uh, so co-design was and is a very important part of what the ATO now does and I think we've been really successful in that. I think we ended up a mile ahead of the rest of the uh, public service simply because we began to not only listen but to understand what the profession is about and just how important it is that you have BAS agents, tax agents, bookkeepers doing that intermediary role. To be really honest, the tax system and the super system will not work without those intermediaries in that place. It can't work. The ATO would need 50,000 staff to have any chance of doing it. We know that, government knows that, the profession always knew it. I think the ATO has come a long way in that six years and I was I was proud when I finally decided to, to retire a couple of years later than what I was supposed to, but I, I had other things to do. I was really driven to ensure that we provided the strongest base to support that intermediate relationship. That's what I wanted to get. I think I achieved a lot of that, but I still think that the ATO is working hard to continue to develop that and I congratulate them for doing so. Yeah, and look, I can assure you, Colin, you you should be prouder the more I've come to understand the part that you played in that and it is a significant role that you've played in forming up what most of us in our industry now understand and appreciate um, on a daily basis. So, you know, on behalf of the bookkeepers listening in on this podcast, we, we owe you a gratitude of debt or, uh, sorry, a debt of gratitude, not a gratitude of debt. That, that's probably what the ATO would like us to uh, still have, but uh, <laughs> a debt of gratitude. And, um, and I, I think the thing is that, you know, I suspect the work isn't done just for you yet because, um, for the for the listeners who are possibly not as well informed as m- what they might like to be, Colin is now a director of the ICB and has jumped on board. And um, I've sat through several board meetings already with Colin and and what his insights and the understandings that he has of the inside of the ATO and and where we do need to go in the distance ahead for our industry as a whole is highly highly valuable and. I sit and listen to uh, what you've got to say in those meetings with in awe, Colin. So, again, retirement isn't quite what it was meant to be. You know, you've got renovations to do. You've got uh, a busy lifestyle and that includes still defining the bookkeeping industry is the way I see it. So, uh, before we finish up, Colin, we um, have a little tradition or a game that we play here on the Heart of the Bookkeeper. It's called Debits and Credits. And the idea is I'm going to give you, as you learnt and you wrote uh, beautifully in your educational pieces back in the 90s, all debits and credits have to equal. So we've got two debits and we've got two credits. Now, 
the debits and credits in, in this particular game are more in the sense of what you would view a traditional, say, bank statement. So uh, debits kind of the, the sort of things that you go, yeah, I could live without those, and a credit is more a more positive lens. So I'm going to ask you effectively four questions, two debits, two credits. We'll start on the debit side of the ledger. Many of us look back over a life as extensive of, as what you've got, and I'm, I'm a little bit behind you, but getting there. And we look at f- old photos and we see things like clothing or fashion and we go, what the heck were we thinking about? Is there one... Is there one thing, is there a photo or something that comes to mind of a, of a particular piece of clothing that you're wearing and you can see it in your mind's eye now that you are, are thinking, what were we thinking back then? It would be the jumper that I wore when I first took my later-to-be wife out to a fancy restaurant in Bishkek <laughs> and it was one of those jumpers that's a knitted jumper with lots and lots of coloured stripes, lots of them, I mean, <laughs> and it's fluffy. And Oh, Colin, what were you thinking? Was this, was oh, this to impress the uh, future Mrs Walker? <laughs> it was. <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> I think oh, they God. call them an ugly sweater these days or something along those uh, lines. Something so. like that, yeah. You wouldn't dare be seen alive with it. I've still got it. My wife keeps saying to me when she sees it, why didn't you throw that away? <laughs> we, might, we might have to see if you can tote that out in a board meeting coming up perhaps. But, uh, <laughs> yep. we'll, we'll flip to the credit side now. So this is sort of a more of a positive answer. In a recent episode of Heart of the Bookkeeper, I interviewed somebody you've already mentioned and I know he's become quite a good friend and confidant to you these days and that's Matthew Addison. We found out in that episode that Matthew um, goes way beyond just, you know, living a life of bookkeeping and and, uh, compliance and, and being inside the ATO. He has a what you might call an obsession for a TV show that I'm sure you uh, well remember called MASH. Now, my question to you is do you have a similar type passion for a particular TV show or a favourite movie and why? Oh, well, I I think there there are two. One you won't find, I don't think, anymore, and that's called Steptoe and Son. Oh, I remember Steptoe. It was fantastic. Yes, uh, it's it was a highlight of my youth. We didn't have a TV until I was in year six. My father loved Steptoe and Son, and we'd have it every week. So that was <laughs> that. Still a favourite of mine. Um, I loved it. As far as a movie goes, this will probably surprise people. There are a lot of different movies that I like, but Pink Floyd The Wall is uh-huh. a strong favourite. Mm. Uh, I am a very strong Pink Floyd fan. I am lucky enough to have been to Pink Floyd Revival, the New Zealand group who've done it in Canberra uh, a number of years ago, but I was a very early Pink Floyd fan back in my university days, and I can attest to the fact that I have a CD of every Pink Floyd record or album ever produced, most of which I was able to purchase through little shops in Kyrgyzstan. Well, there you go. Well, we won't say say the black market, but, um, yeah. (laughs) 
Who would have ever thought that Kyrgyzstan would be a hot spot for Pink Floyd? But there you go. Uh, um, pink, you, pink, um, Deep Purple is another one. Deep Purple. Deep Purple. And, yeah, and there you go. Akabaka, wow. Yeah, all three you're, you're, of those very, very popular over there. Right, very right popular. in my hitting zone too there, Colin. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, back to the debits. This is this is a very short answer because it's one that you could expand on, but we'll just go with short answer on this one. Across your time at the ATO, is there one program or process that you now look back on and go, we clearly had this wrong. We we should never have gone down this rabbit warren. Is is there one thing that you can think of? There is, and it's called deceased estates. It caused me huge amount of pain and suffering. I eventually was able to undo the damage that we did, but yeah, uh, we got it really, really wrong right from the start, and it was just really bad news. Mostly impacts tax agents, and I do remember when that was sort of forming itself up, and and um, I think one of the things that um, I certainly have come to understand about you, and that is, you are the first to to say when something just hasn't gone the way it should have done. So it was a bit of a loaded question that one. I think I've heard you speak on that briefly before. So. There are others, obviously. But, yeah. <laughs> we'll go with deceased yeah. estates as being the, the number one. So finally, let's finish on a good note, okay? And and this is, again, a little bit of a loaded question, so I do apologise. I'm inside uh, a few um, reference groups, you might say, with the ATO, and, and I want to attest to the fact that you mentioned before that there are a lot of good people inside the ATO, and I'm starting to understand a lot of those or get to know a lot of those people and, and they are outstanding people and their hearts are in the right area to try and, and make, um, uh, especially for practitioners, a better experience across the board. I was in, in a forum recently with, with some of those outstanding people and they toted out the term the Colin Walker factor. Now, uh, I won't go into the, the context of it, but if I could ask you this question, if there's one, you know, we talk a lot about legacy. If there was one thing that you would desire for you to have as a legacy, a lasting legacy, what would it be? I, I don't know, to be honest, Rob. I do not know. It's a tough question, isn't it? Yeah. I retired having completed everything that I thought that I could get done in a reasonable period. There was a lot more that I would like to see, but, yeah, I'm pretty happy with what I managed to get. Uh, online services for agents was so, so important and uh, it took so much time, effort, health, everything to get that flying and it's still being enhanced and I suppose a future vision there, there's a bit of work around, you, you probably know Alex. Alex is the yep. um, the young lady on the website that uh, mm-hmm. can give individuals ideas. Well, there is a project going on to create a, uh, a similar person for the website for agents so that agents can ask terrible questions and get answers. Um, it was <laughs> suggested they were going to call it Colin. 
Um, <laughs> I'll wait and see, but I'd love to see that happen. Oh, look, I'll be I'll be advocating for that for absolute sure. <laughs> Ask Colin. There you go. That's yep. what we Ask want, Colin. right, listeners of the uh, Heart of the Bookkeeper? We start a campaign. We want that. We want it called Ask Colin. So there you go. <laughs> Fantastic, <laughs> Colin Walker. I, I just I cannot. Um, thank you enough for giving us some incredible insights, a journey down memory lane, but most importantly, an understanding, especially for the listeners of where the ATO has come from, because you, <laughs> you've clearly been there for a, a long period of time. You've seen so many things happen. You've shared a lot of that today. I'd love to have another hour or two, and that might happen down the track. But for now, Colin, thank you very much. I don't think you have to try and create a, a legacy you already have. It's there. Many of us are the beneficiaries of that on a daily basis, as I mentioned before. Thank you for your time today. We look forward to the incredible insights again that you're providing already for the ICB and its membership. And we look forward to moving forward the Baz agent and the bookkeeper space into a really positive place in the in the coming years. Thanks again, Colin. Thanks, Rob. Wow, how good was that, folks? Thank you to Colin Walker, an amazing journey down almost the history of the ATO of the last 50 years. What an incredible journey we have all just been on. And Colin's story continues as a current director of the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers. And I can assure the listeners what an amazing result that is for our bookkeeping industry here in Australia. I want to give a shout out now to Nat Marshall, who has been incredible in editing these podcasts for us for the last three or four episodes and continues to do so. Thank you, Nat. I couldn't do this without you. And I hope you will continue to support me and the Heart of the Bookkeeper podcast through this because you are doing an exceptional job. So thank you very much, Natty. And I look forward to you, the listeners, joining us on the very next episode of Heart of the Bookkeeper, episode four. May you stay safe and we love your heart. See you on the next episode of Heart of the Bookkeeper. Bookkeeper.